Luke, chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with ten thousand men, to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. <coughs> salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here ends the Gospel reading. Please do have a seat. And this morning, as you may have picked up, we begin a new series in Luke's Gospel on the cost of discipleship or of following Jesus, which seems very appropriate at this time and in these days. And we're going to concentrate this morning on carrying our cross from that reading we had from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, which you'll find on page 874. So do turn back to that passage. But first of all, let me encourage you to listen to these political appeals calling people to action. John F. Kennedy said this, My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And of course, appeals to patriotism can work very well indeed. Here's Winston Churchill. You can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And uh, Churchill was trying to be funny and a touch of humor can help in uh, even making serious appeals to the Americans to come into the war to help. And Winston Churchill also said, Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Well, here in Luke chapter 14, Jesus memorably calls us to come and follow him. And in so doing, sums up what it means to be a Christian. Once we've put 
our faith in him. Jesus says it's all a matter of what we do as Christians in his power. It's all, it's a call to come and to die. Not the most attractive or humorous call ever. In fact, there are three calls here. To be and to do, which Jesus issues to any would-be follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, the call to be committed, verses 25 to 26. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice what's happening and what Jesus does here. Great crowds, says Luke, are following him. And here we've got the fulfillment of the parable that's just gone before this in verse 23. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. That is to come in to my kingdom. Come into the heavenly party. That my house may be filled. And the answer to that is already happening. So what does Jesus do? Does he pump up the volume and whip up the crowd into some sort of religious frenzy as they all gather? Well, hardly. He stops them dead in their tracks and delivers two calls which are enough to make anyone think twice about following Jesus. First, there's a demand that we put Christ before others. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? And maybe you're thinking, how can Jesus say such a thing? He says, if you don't hate those closest to you, then you cannot be my follower. But what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, it means that if we don't love Jesus in such a way that our love for our nearest and dearest doesn't appear to be hate in comparison, So don't take this the wrong way. Jesus is not saying that we're not to love those who are nearest and dearest to us. Of course not. The Bible says that we're to honor our parents. But what he is saying is that our love for our nearest and dearest, if that doesn't appear to be hate in comparison, 
then we can't be one of his people. Do you know the two greatest commandments in the Bible? The first is, love the Lord your God with the whole of your being. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. And get those in the wrong order, and you've got the pleasing of man rather than the pleasing of God. That attitude led to world wars in the 20th century, getting that the wrong way around. And sadly, much of the church in the West has that attitude today with serious consequences, both for churches and for society. But going back to verses 25 to 26, it can also be something that we find ourselves doing. For example, how much Christian work has been stifled because the children say they want Sundays for other things, for sport for parties, etc., etc. So whole families are kept away from Christian service. But of course, we can rationalize it. We don't want to make Christianity too hard, otherwise it might put people off. So we have to make it convenient. But that's not what Jesus says here. A couple I know became Christians later in life, and that was much to the embarrassment of their adult children. And they were given an ultimatum. The children said to them, Mom, Dad, it's either us or Christianity. What's it going to be? Well, their parents chose Christ. And you know what? Their children haven't spoken them, spoken to them since. I mean, that's tragic. That is awful. But that's what Jesus means. Next, Jesus says, verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the demand to put Christ before self. That's what this business about a carrying a cross actually means. To carry a cross was a public statement that the one shouldering it was to be impaled upon it. In other words, he was to die. To these people, Jesus could not have been more offensive had he told them as Jews to bathe in pig's blood. The cross was normally reserved for radicals, For revolutionaries, those who foolishly chose to go against the might of the Roman Empire. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. His followers are meant to go against the flow too. And such talk of cross-carrying is just as offensive to our self-absorbed society now as it was to Jesus' society then. One uh, secular counselor has listed 37 rights that we should all enjoy, such as these. I have a right to dignity and respect. I have a right to make decisions based on my feelings, my judgment, or any reason I should choose. I have a right to be happy. But Jesus says, no, you don't. Not if you're going to be my disciple. 
And Jesus is emphatic about it, isn't he? You cannot, he says, be my disciple without doing this. The problem is that we want to bargain with Jesus. To tone down the nature of his demands. Or turn them on their head altogether. To make them more palatable. So we want to talk about Christianity being cool. Jesus talks about Christianity involving a cross. An Anglican minister who sadly became a Buddhist wrote this. Without any disrespect, it must be said that the Christian faith is preeminently the gambler's religion. In no other religion are the stakes so high and the choice so momentous. But Jesus isn't playing games here. He's wanting you and me, body, mind, and soul, to gamble everything on him, so to speak. So we better know what we're letting ourselves in for. Which is the point of the next two parables. And in them is my second point. Jesus' call to be wise. Verses 28 to 33. And the first parable is something many of his followers will be able to identify with. Just imagine that you want to build a tower on your farm for storage purposes. Look at verse 28. Then the first thing you will do is a feasibility study. You'll get an architect, which could cost you an arm and a leg. And then you'll get an accountant, another uh, <clears throat> arm gone, so to speak, to work out the total costs involved. And then you begin building. What you don't do is have a grandiose scheme, call the workmen to lay the foundation, and perhaps a few bricks on top of that, only to find that you can't complete the job. And you're left with a, a monument to your own stupidity. What people used to call a folly, such as the Penshaw Monument. And in a shame culture, verse 29, you'd avoid that like the plague. You see, Jesus is saying, count the cost. And there's a cost in being a follower of Jesus. Our difficulty, of course, is that we live in a credit culture. Where we're encouraged to take all the benefits now and put off footing the bill till much later. Or preferably let someone else pick it up. And that's something which can easily be transferred into our Christian life. Expectations are raised that being a Christian will be all blessing. With minimum of difficulty. The swipe card of prayer is used and the instant answers are called for, usually centered on ourselves. But that's not the way Jesus presents it. There's no credit. It's cash on demand, up front. Well, make sure that you've got what it takes to follow him in the power of his spirit. So be thoughtful, says Jesus. But the second parable raises the stakes even higher. For there's a king who's preparing to go to war. More than a reputation's at stake. It's people's lives. Verses 31 and 32. Now a wise king will make sure that he's in a position to win. 
If it looks like he doesn't have the resources to counter an enemy with a two-to-one advantage, then he'll take the diplomatic route if he's got any sense. In other words, he'll use his brain before committing his country to war. But there's an additional point here. Not only must potential followers of Christ be thoughtful, they must also be decisive. It won't do for a ruler in a war situation to dilly-dally in making decisions. That was why at the start of World War II, Neville Chamberlain, the appeasing prime minister, had to be replaced by Winston Churchill. Too much was at stake. And indecisiveness can be, especially when it comes to matters of eternity, a snare. Perhaps that's where some of you are. You've heard the claims of Jesus. You know that your eternal de- destiny depends upon responding to him. You're even willing to follow at a distance, mingling in the crowd, coming here every Sunday morning. Well, today, this same Jesus is challenging you. He's challenging you personally to follow him. So either follow him and have the courage of your convictions or walk away. Or maybe you're an enthusiast at the front of the crowd, but you're feeling a little uncomfortable with the words of verse 33, which encapsulates everything Jesus has been saying. Look at that verse. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The test as to whether we're taking those words of Jesus seriously is how we follow him in the day-to-day routine of life. The Christian writer Oswald Chambers pointed out that drudgery is the touchstone of Christian character. Just think about that for a moment. Drudgery is the touchstone of Christian character. He writes, walking on the water is easy to impulsive pluck. But walking on dry land as a disciple of Jesus Christ is a different thing. Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. But he followed him on land in a very far off way. We don't need the grace Chambers continues, of God to stand crises. Human nature and pride are very sufficient. We can face the strain magnificently. But it does require the supernatural grace of God to live 24 hours in every day as a Christian. To go through drudgery as a disciple. To live an ordinary, unobserved, ignored existence as a disciple of Jesus. It's inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God. But we have not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things. To be holy in mean streets. Among mean people. And this is not learned in five minutes. So the question is, are you a 24-7 Christian? Or only when it suits. 
John Newton once said to a Christian who was moaning that it was proving too difficult to follow Christ, he said, don't tell me of your feelings. A traveler will be glad of fine weather. But if he's a man of business, he will go on whatever. And that's precisely what Jesus is looking for in you and me. And that tone of John Newton could well be capturing the tone of Jesus here. What he's really doing is motivating people like you and me to follow him by raising the bar rather than by turning people away. Think of it like this. You have an athletic coach. Maybe that's too far for you to imagine. But anyway, you have an athletic coach. And at the first session, he gives the team a pep talk. The coach lays it on the line that he or she expects to see everyone turn up for the training sessions on time. To give 100%. To give up anything that will prevent them giving of their best. Then comes the line. Okay, if you're not willing to do this, then go now. You're not worthy to wear the shirt. Sure, you could slink out at that point to the ridicule of your teammates, and that was referred to in parable one, but you've signed on with eyes wide open, and you've made your decision, and you're going to stay, and this is parable two. Christian, Christianity is not for quitters. It requires more guts to be a Christian than it does to be a non-Christian, because anyone can be big and mindless in a crowd. The Christian has to be twice as sharp and twice as courageous. Let's go back to Winston Churchill for a moment. In a school assembly he gave during World War II, he simply said just these words. Never, 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 never give up. And then he sat down. That was his assembly to a whole group of boys during World War II when times were quite difficult. It's always too soon to quit. And remember, we're not alone when we follow Jesus. He's with us every single step of the way. Jesus talks about us being his disciple. We're not committed to a program or even to a movement as such, but rather to a person. The one person that you can rely on. So what's going to be so costly in following Jesus? Well, the answer is brought to a head in verse 34. And this is my final point this morning. A call to be different. Look at verse 34 and uh, verse 35. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
You see, if your attitudes and behavior aren't that different from those around you, then you won't have much hassle in this life. Because you don't want to upset your parents or your spouse or your children. Well, you'll be tempted to soft-pedal your faith. And the reasons are because you're concerned about yourself. And that's why Jesus says it has to be crucified if you're going to be his disciple. That's the point about salt here. Here its main function is as a component of compost or manure. And salt which has ceased to be salt, that is distinctive, isn't even good for that. So just how should the followers of Jesus be distinctive? And so drawing both the opposition and interest of a world on the run from God. Well, the way our distinctiveness will work out will depend to an extent on where we are as a society. So in a society sold on sexual gratification, the Christian will emphasize chastity. That sex is for heterosexual monogamous marriage, full stop. That will make Christians stand out and attracts all the taunts and barbed comments. The Christian girl who cherishes her chastity at university will be made to feel subnormal, no matter what the rhetoric about a woman's right to choose. And we also live in a society that emphasizes emotions above thinking. If it feels good, do it. And the more mindless the entertainment, the better. In that situation, the Christian will be counter-cultural by emphasizing the use of the mind. Sure, we shouldn't lose sight of the place of the emotions. Of course not. But relative to the culture will appear odd for wanting to make decisions on the basis of careful thought and argument arising out of the word of God. Emphasize today that Jesus is the only way to God and you'll be accused of being intolerant. Although we defend the right to hold whatever views people wish. So show joy and emotion in a church service and you'll be written off as one of those happy clappy ones. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he didn't conform to the tight religious standards of his day. He was also accused of being demon-possessed when he was stricter in applying the scriptures than were the religious elite. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we can expect the same flack. From the viewpoint of the world, Christians are always in a lose-lose situation. But not from God's perspective. Not from God's viewpoint. Not from the only standpoint that really matters, which is eternity. You see, we live in a day of tremendous opportunity. In reality, the West is bankrupt, intellectually, morally, and politically. There is a vacuum. And if we don't fill it, others will. 
But if we're going to make any headway, we've got to stop going with the flow and be radically and humbly different. And that means wholehearted commitment to Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our simple prayer this morning is help us to follow you as you would have us do. For your namesake. Amen.